Welcome in to the newest edition of the Justin Time Sports Podcast. I am your owner and host, Justin Jackson. And this week's episode, we'll be discussing the football playoffs, college football, and the NFL. Now, as always, don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the Justin Time Sports Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Pandora, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, don't forget to follow and turn on the post notifications for the Justin Time Sports social media page with social media handle at JTime Sports on all of your favorite social medias. Now, as always, don't forget to sit back, get ready to learn something. show uh, i'm recording this on a tuesday night so you guys will hear this wednesday morning very excited to be with you guys in this football playoff episode so we're not talking basketball i don't care about major league baseball even though they're in their winter off season i don't care about hockey i could care less what's going on there i don't know i gotta talk about nba and mma excuse me I'm not going to talk about anything unless it's a football playoff. And there's only two of them happening, or happen happening, and that is the college football playoff, and of course the NFL playoffs begin this weekend. So we're going to go back, and we're going to do a recap of the college football playoff. That game was dominant. And the final score is actually closer than the game was, but at the same time, the dominant aspect of how the game was played showed up in the final score. And I was live tweeting it um, drive for drive for the most part. I missed a couple of drives in the third quarter, um, man, because I was eating. Um, but, you know, there were a couple of drives in the third quarter I did miss, but I was going drive for drive for the most part. Michigan had multiple opportunities in that game before they blew it open in the fourth quarter. They had multiple opportunities in that game to blow Washington out of the water. Uh, Michael Penning's was off. And... Of course, there's the conspiracy theories floating around. Oh, you know, he made a lot of money that night, and he was hurt, and he was injured. I mean, he was hurt, he was paid to lose or whatever. No. Look, if we're going to do that with professional sports, let's just cancel the sports, okay? Um, Michigan was the better football team. Michigan, I told you guys last week, honestly could have been the number one team all year. The only reason why they weren't is because Georgia hadn't lost for two and a half years. And so people kind of was like, until Georgia loses, they can't come down. Which, total respect. Um, you keep being undefeated, you're doing something right. But Michigan played like the best football team all year. Even when Jim Harbaugh got suspended, that Michigan team under Sharon Moore was when he was on game day. They dominated Penn State. They won the Ohio State game. Um, I forgot the other game that they won. But they won three big conference games coming down the stretch. Of course, Harbaugh comes back full flesh for the postseason, and they finish off uh, the 15-0 season for Team 144, as they call them in Michigan, because Michigan doesn't think about, oh, it's been – they don't think of, you know, how, we, how LSU fans, for instance, think of the 2019 LSU, 2003 LSU, 2007 LSU. Um, even this past year's offense was spectacular. Michigan does team whatever year of football they're in. 
So Team 144 delivers the first ever on-field championship for the University of Michigan as they began playing football in 1880. But back to the game. So when you looked at that game, that game was a matchup of two developed rosters. This was regards going into the game, it was highly publicized. This is going to be the worst by recruiting ranked champion in the past like 10, 20 years. Um in terms of the average star ranking on a team, etc. based on high school recruiting, this is going to be a developmental championship, meaning these guys weren't very highly recruited. Maybe they were highly recruited, but they weren't the five stars everybody wanted. They weren't really the upper level four stars everybody wanted. This is a lot of mid-level fours, three-star, two-star guys, transfer portal guys in the case of Washington. When you look at their leader, Michael Penix, um, developed guys in the case of Blake Corm. When you look at Michigan, J.J. McCarthy was a pretty decently highly rated recruit, but by average of star rating, this was the lowest, uh, regardless of which team won, the lowest national champion in like the past 10 or 20 years. The problem was Michigan had more raw talent. We're going to put it up there. Michigan had more raw talent. Washington's only hope going into the game. I thought it'd be a shootout. I think I predicted 34-31, 34-30, somewhere in there. Um, and Michigan hit 34 in the head. Washington, if they would have flipped their nope, digits around, would have hit on the head. But they ended up with 13. But Washington's only chance in that game was to outspeed Michigan using a Dunze and the rest of that vertical and horizontal passing attack to outspeed Michigan and for Johnson, I think it's the running back's name, uh, who got hurt in like the first play, who came into the game injured, for Johnson to be effective. And I don't mean three yards a pop, second and seven. And then now Penix is throwing on second and third down. I mean, like, first down carry, six. Now it's second and four. Now they can either run it again. We know the play action game's involved. Now those corners and safeties keep their eyes on the run game. And that's when the Doomsday and the rest of the crew start flying around. Um, and they, he suffered a high ankle sprain, uh, the running back did in the first play of the game. And after that, he gutted through the game. He played the whole game. He gutted it through. But you can tell he wasn't there. Um, he said it after the game. He said, I, I mean, I was, I was diagnosed with a high ankle sprain. What was I going to do, sit? I mean, like, so he gutted it through the whole game. Um, kudos to him for showing absolute toughness. I mean, Trevor Lawrence, people thought it was a miracle when he came back from a high ankle sprain the next week. This guy suffered a high ankle sprain and played the rest of the game and got carries. It wasn't like he was a decoy just in there, just to be in there. Like, he got carries up the middle, stretches, everything. They kept the offense Fairly similar to what it normally is for Washington. The issue was Michigan no longer feared the run game. When you allow a defensive coordinator, Michigan has two. I mean, no, the Michigan has two. Whatever. When you allow a defensive coordinator, a defensive staff, to not worry about one attack, it makes it hard, right? And you can see it on both sides. Michigan, after Johnson got hurt no longer cared about the run game. They were willing to go with four and to have the linebacker fill in the gap. They weren't really run blitzing anymore. They were pass blitzing. If they were going to blitz, they were sending pass blitzes. They were doing everything they can to disrupt Michael Penix because they no longer had to concern themselves with stopping the run. Instead of being a dynamic back in the backfield, it was a pretty average running back because he was on one leg put together, a high ankle sprain on one, and then he came in with a knee injury on the other. Um, and so... That allowed that Michigan defense, specifically those linebackers, to when they did the they did they ran, both linebackers were in the line and they bailed out. 
they didn't even have to worry about, man, we might have to put our foot in the dirt and come back down because the running back couldn't make that much noise. Um, plus, the Michigan D-line overmatched the Washington line all night. It looked a lot like when UCLA played Colorado. And I noticed UCLA, because Colorado had such a porous offensive line, UCLA did everything they could to make one-on-one blocks. Because if I can double team, I can slide to a weak blocker, whatever, I can help out. For instance, the weak blocker in Washington last night was 73. Um, 73 had several, a couple of big holdings, had a bad fall start. Like, 73 was the weak link. So I'm sure in that game, the old the offense would have loved to slide his way, chip with the running back, do things to try and help him out a little bit against that Michigan edge rush. The problem was what Michigan decided to do was they decided to pre-snap show you man-on-man. What I mean man-on-man is you have five blockers. So Michigan would walk both linebackers down, maybe even an overhang player to one side, and put six on the line, or five or six on the line. So now the old linemen have to point, that's my guy, this is my guy. So everybody's acknowledges one-on-one. When those linebackers would bail, those people who were supposed to block the linebackers don't, it's impossible for them to immediately shift to helping because, number one, that's not in the blocking scheme. Number two, the guy you would help isn't expecting your help. So he's not, for instance, that tackle over kickstepping to make the, make the DN come in and then you have a help guard. Or if you're a guard, you're not, you know, trying to push your guy to the outside because you have tackle help or shove your guy inside because you have center help. You're thinking in your mind it's one-on-one. So now the guards in this scenario are useless. They're just standing there blocking air because they were accounting for the linebackers. So now both tackles and the centers are effectively one-on-one. And Michigan was taking advantage of that matchup all night. It also made the running back hesitate because if it's six people up there, we got five offensive linemen, somebody has to come free, which means either the running back becomes the hot route or he has to stay in the help block. So now when those linebackers and those guys were bailing out, the running back now guarded himself for a second or two. Now, by the time, so those linebackers had a chance to get depth before the running back even came out of the backfield. I mean, it was a great uh, strategy by Michigan, and they hit Penix all night. Now, there were some opportunities for Penix to really um, come back in this game, and the announcing crew repeatedly showed plays where – I think because of that simulated pressure, he was trying to pre-read the defense, and they were mixing up a lot of the post-snap, pre-snap reads. Um, the big throw, of course, everybody remembers the fourth down play, um, which if he hits it, Washington probably scores that possession, ties the game up. We could be having a different conversation right now. Um, perfect play call, a doomsday pops wide open, Penix misses the throw. In that second half, as it was 20 to 13, or it was 17 to 10, they ended up in 2013 in the third quarter. Penix missed, not the throw, but the read a couple of times. He had a doomsday on a crossing route. He ended up throwing a, um, an out route to the uh, opposite side of the field. Or no, that, that was the pick. The pick to end the game, a doomsday, or one of the picks in the second half. A doomsday is coming across the field on a, on, a, on a dig route. He tries to force the ball in. And I don't know what Penix was doing here. Tries to force the ball in. Felt like he predetermined that's so he wanted to throw it. Crazy part is, it wasn't a bad throw. If his receiver was sitting down in that zone instead of running through it, he probably hits him in the chest in the middle of four Michigan defenders. Um, the issue is, he doesn't sit. He keeps running, and the ball hits a Michigan player in the chest. Then there was another play, um, 
semi, I don't think it was an interception, an intermittent incompletion, where the tight end pops right up the seam by himself. There's nobody there. And for a quarterback with Penning's arm, that's an easy throw. He fires right through the middle of the gap, the tight end walks into the end zone. Again, it could be 20 to 20. We're having another conversation here, um, potentially. But he just missed it. And then what also happened in the second half was something that if you guys watch Michigan, I love Harbaugh, so I watch Michigan a lot. Uh, If you notice, Michigan would get into games where they kind of look up and go, the other team can't beat us. I mean, they, they, they can't do it. I don't know if that's a Jim Harbaugh call. I don't know if the defensive coordinator, defensive staff, it's like, look, they can't score. I don't know if that's a Sharon Moore just observing, like, man, that other offense isn't moving it very much. Um, but they kind of go into the mode where they don't throw the ball. Um, and you saw that at Penn State where the whole fourth quarter, McCarthy basically turned around and handed the ball to Corum and Donovan um, and just – Pounded Penn State into oblivion. They did it. They did it the year before the Penn State. They ran it 26 times and ran the game out against Penn State. Uh, and they did it again this year towards the end of the game. They just stopped throwing the ball against Ohio State. They just stopped throwing the ball. Like we're just gonna out physical you. McCarthy made a couple of big throws against Ohio State, but for the most part, that was a lot of two and seven uh, coming downhill at Ohio State. They were just better than Iowa in the Alabama game in that second half. It gained to be a lot of two and seven. And, of course, in overtime, it was Blake Horm right on a power, and they ran the exact same play. Like, they flipped it in Madden and ran it left and scored. Um, and then this game, that first quarter, Michigan came out to physically dominate this game. They wanted to show Michigan, you guys, you guys cannot physically match up with us. And Donovan Wilson, I think is his name. I'm sorry if it's not. Uh, Donovan Wilson pops two big, long runs in that first quarter. Uh, he goes north of – he goes two carries, like 87 yards and two touchdowns in the first quarter. Um, and then Blake Corm wears him down as well. Michigan actually went to the half with 200 yards rushing. But here's what's the interesting part about that. So remember how I spoke about a few minutes ago, Washington had no run game. And so Michigan just began to stop the pass. So now Penix is dealing with a crazy stunt that you don't know where it's coming from because the front looks the same every time. And it's either nobody, it's everybody, it's one person, it's a twist, it's a game. Like, it was all kind of stuff happening uh, for Michael Penix's eyesight and his own line. He's also dealing with the fact that it's a blanket coverage because everybody's dropping out. Michigan had the exact other problem, right? The two of the T other problem. Um, they weren't throwing the ball. McCarthy was off. He ended up, I think, 8 of 16 uh, for the game or 9 of 17, something something near 50% passing. They were very, very off, right? And so what that did was the yards per carry bottomed out. Michigan had, it was the ESPN graphic late in the third quarter, Michigan had 19.2 yards per carry in the first quarter. In the second quarter, it was 4.4. In the third quarter, it was 4.2. Because what Michigan did to them was they were giving all these overload looks, all these heavy packages. They was motioning everybody over, running counters backside, just doing stuff because Washington still was kind of stuck between guard and run pass. 
When they realized McCarthy wasn't really playing that well, they began to load it up. So the one thing to stop a heavy package, especially when backside counters and stuff, is to load it up. So when you run those pullers away, the people who suppose that their original pussy blocking just follows them in and blows the run up. Um, and, it was a, and it caused a mess in the Michigan run game, and it slowed the game down. The game actually hauled to a creek, or to a creep in the third quarter. Like I said, exchange of field goals and punts. Um, and then in the fourth quarter, Michigan busted open. Uh, by the end of the game, Panis is holding his ribs. Uh, by the second to last, third to last series, every time he gets touched, he's on the ground holding his ribs. Uh, all kudos to him for surviving the game and finishing the game. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a report in the near future that he played with fractured ribs or cracked ribs or um, that those ribs were damaged uh, in some shape, form, or fashion. So um, kudos to Michael Penix for battling through. But now let's go to the victors. Let's go to Michigan. Again, kudos to being 15-0. But let's go to John, or sorry, Jim Harbaugh. He finally did it. Right, he's had some very good football teams. He had good ones at Stanford, uh, just didn't have the overall talent level to win big. He won at San Diego State, but of course, San Diego State, you're not gonna get much love there. Um, he was in the 40, he was in the Super Bowl with the 49ers, was in a couple of NFC Championship games with the 49ers. Of course, he's I think he was the coach during the infamous um, you tried me with a side receiver like Crabtree, Richard Sherman rant. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure he was the head coach of the Niners in that game. Um, and, of course, he made it to the Super Bowl against his brother, John. Uh, they asked him, they used to ask his parents, like, who are you rooting for? Uh, again, it was John beat Jim. Uh, Jim. John ultimately beat Jim. And Jim ends up leaving the Niners or gets fired, mutually part ways, whatever, and ends up with Michigan. Struggled out of the gate. He's been in Michigan for eight years now. Uh, struggled out of the gate. But these last three years, man, they figured it out. He's got it down, and he didn't have a quarterback at Michigan. It's really weird. Like, for the first part of the tenure, he just couldn't get a quarterback. And so now he got J.J. McCarthy, who we call the best uh, QB to ever play at Michigan. I kind of can't disagree. Um, I mean, he's not nearly as exciting as a guy like Denard Robinson. He doesn't have the pro career of a guy like Tom Brady, but as far as any Michigan jersey in the maize and blue, I can't necessarily disagree with that. Uh, John Har- Jim Harbaugh himself played at Michigan, so if anybody knows about Michigan quarterback history, it's him. Um, but you know he goes on this magical run, and it's it's so Jim Harbaugh, right? It's so Jim Harbaugh. It's run the ball. It's physical defense. It's an athletic quarterback who can make the right throws when he needs to. It's controversial, you know, because he gets suspended three games for the sign stealing scandal. It's magical at the end. It's nail-biting. It's frustrating. It's, oh, no, it almost didn't happen. But usually with Harbaugh, it does, right? Usually with Harbaugh, it finishes with, oh, no, it didn't happen again. The Super Bowl. The games against Ohio State early. It usually finishes with the Rose Bowl last year against TCU. It usually finishes with, oh, oh, no, it just didn't happen again, right? Not this time, right? Jim Harbaugh wins uh, Michigan's first national title of any sort since 1998, where they split with Nebraska, their first outright title, I believe, ever. Uh, Definitely their first what I call on-the-field title, which is a national championship game uh, they wanted. Jim Harbaugh, thanks to this, goes over $10 million in salary this year due to his incentives of winning, you know, Big Ten and playoff game and national championship. 
Um, and now I think he heads to the Chargers, right? And to me, it's the worst kept secret in sports. I, I'm betting my professional reputation on this. Every single tea leaf has him going to the Chargers. Um, and just a quick rundown of the tea leaves. He was linked to the Chargers fired their head coach, Brandon Staley, worst coach in football, smart decision. And they fired GM Tom Telesco. Now, I didn't think that was all that smart. Tom Telesco is one of the best GMs in football. That Chargers roster is legit. However, if he hired the coach, then maybe his decision making ain't that great. But that head coach, that, I mean, that roster, that Chargers roster, excuse me, is legit. Herbert, Eckler, Bosa, Mack, Keenan Allen, Quinston Johnson starting to come on a little bit. Kenneth Murray, um, I miss somebody, big fella. Mike Williams, Parnum at tight end. That's a, that's a legitimate roster, right? And so I don't expect him to be out of work long. And so, okay, that's interesting. Because it's always a Kirby Smart, Jim Harbaugh, and it's another one. I think Enemy um, has been linked to wanting personnel, either personnel control or be able to pick their own GM, which is effectively personnel control, but I don't do the legwork. And that's the arrangement that the Niners have. John uh, Kyle Shanahan picked John Lynch, so he has personnel control without doing the legwork that John Lynch has to do. Right? Cool. And then, so, that happened with the Chargers. And then it comes out, Jim Harbaugh could, I mean, less than a week later, Jim Harbaugh would, would consider, seriously be considering a return to the NFL. Usually it's Harbaugh linked to the NFL just in general, but this is a pretty serious, hard report. Like, he's, he's very interested. And this is right around the time of the suspension. Well, no, suspension hadn't happened yet. So then he gets suspended. Okay. One of his big complaints always about college was the rules. Like, that's what makes most college coaches go pro if they can. Is just the rule book against the It's pain in the butt. Then Harbaugh switches representation to Don Yee. Don Yee is a known uh, super agent. He's rep- he got Tom Brady and Sean Payton as a couple of his clients. Like he is the guy in the NFL. If you want your name in the NFL circles, it's Don Yee. Okay. He does that. Less than 72 hours after that, report big report comes out. The Chargers are going to aggressively pursue Jim Harbaugh in the offseason. When Jim Harbaugh's asked about this at the National Championship game, media day, he sidesteps with the same line. We are focused on the here and now. We're a team that's focused on today. We're going to go out and be the best we can today. We're going to wake up tomorrow and try and be the best we can and try and, try and win that day. Kept saying it repeatedly. And the tea leaves just kept swirling. Kept swirling. Kept swirling. Reports left and right about Harbaugh to the NFL, etc. I would be shocked if the next head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers isn't Jim Harbaugh. I don't see Harbaugh going to the Raiders. Cap strap. Fans love Antonio Pierce. Going into the Lions, then people waiting on you to like mess it up. Don't see him going to Washington. Chicago's keeping Eberflu. Carolina's a mess. I think if Jim Harbaugh's going to turn down eight to ten million dollars base salary from um, Michigan, he's going to go somewhere he can win. And I think the Chargers are set up for him to win right now. I think the Chargers are set up for him to win right now. 
Um, they have a number no, no five overall draft pick. They can draft a really good offensive lineman to protect Justin Herbert, and they can go win football games right now. And whether he brings Sharon Moore in as the OC for Lions, or Sharon Moore, not the Lions, the Chargers, or Sharon Moore gets the Michigan job, all that will be decided once Harbaugh makes his decision. But I think, I'm pretty sure, he's going to be the next head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. And it's official, ladies and gentlemen. We have gone through the 10-year era of the college football playoff um, four-team era. I don't know what happened to like, eh, whatever. We're officially through the four-team era of the college football playoff. Um, it's officially over. Of course, next year we convert to the 12-year playoff, um, which I think erases the biggest problem people have with the playoff. That the games aren't close. I mean, that's the that's the issue, and I don't think that gets solved in the first round because, like, for instance, this year Georgia would have played Liberty in Athens. Yeah, that's a that's forty eight three. You know what I'm saying? Like that's that's a that's an abuse. Um, but I think it does solve some of the later games. For instance, one through four be off. Five through twelve have to play. Everybody goes around. More than likely, most of the time, the teams left are going to be one through eight. So when you get to that third round, some of those teams have won two games. They're on. They're rolling. They're hot. You know, if it's a higher seed, they won one. If it's one of the top four seed, they won one game, proving that they're really good. But if it's like a seven seed, knock off a ten and then knock off the two or something like that, now they're rolling. They're hot. So you can see a team that had a quarterback injury that had a slow start, that ended up in that ranking position, and now they're potentially winning a national championship because they were able to prove it on the field. Um, and so that's what's going to make, to me, the games a lot closer. Maybe not the first round, but those second, third, and ultimately the national championship, you're going to have to win at least two games to get to the national championship. It's not like, you know, Michigan won one to play the Natty. Like, you're going to have to win at least two because if you have the first round off, you still have to beat somebody in the round of eight. Beat somebody in the full in the in the semifinals, and then play in the national championship. So some college team may win four games in the postseason and win the Natty. You're gonna have to win at least three. Uh, so I think that's gonna make sure that those games at the end are close because these teams are gonna have to be battle tested so long to even get there. But up next, we are going to shift to the NFL and talk about Super Wild Card Weekend. Welcome back into the show, and now we're going to talk about the NFL Super Wildcard Weekend. Ladies and gentlemen, we made it. There was a lot of guys excited over the past weekend. Chris Jones basically threw a party on the sideline for his sack, giving him his $1.25 million um, incentive. Jadavion Clowney got his incentives. A couple of guys felt woefully short, or painfully short, not woefully, painfully short, if I was an owner, I would just convert them into roster bonuses or whatever, do something to get those guys that money. And those guys that finished like 13 yards short of an incentive for like 250K or one catch, I think I've seen for 250K. Like, 
Uh, but he had a guy like D-Hop cashed in both of his intentions for 500k. Odell cashed in for 250. Um, some of those guys cashed in. Sometimes they don't. I mean, it was can't think of a guy. He was literally one catch short of his incentive number for 250k. Like if you're that close, I'm gonna I'm gonna convert it right. Like I'm a billionaire. Like you, it's your money, dude. Like you got it. Um, so that's always fun the last weekend of the year. But also the last weekend of the year is fun when there's deciding seeds. Steelers get in the playoffs. Uh, shout out to them. Uh, Jaguars <laughs> go into a long off season, right? Like, imagine five weeks ago telling a Jaguars fan you're not going to make the playoffs. Like, they were already starting to pre-sell playoff tickets in the end of November. Like, it was because they were three games up in the division, like five left to go in the season. Two of them were division games. One of them against the Titans. They were basically tanking. Like, I think for the last three or four weeks of the season, their magic number was one. Like, dude, win one game a year in. And they just, they just didn't. Like, everything that could have gone wrong for them, like Pittsburgh being viable, um, Buffalo charging back, like, all those things, literally everything went wrong for Jacksonville. And like I said, it sends them into an incredibly long offseason with a lot of questions. People are questioning Trevor Lawrence right now. People are questioning Doug Peterson right now. People are questioning that GM, whether that's enough talent on that team. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions and a long offseason for Jacksonville. Um, you got Buffalo. You know, they went into the weekend staring at potentially two seed or at home, and they ended up winning the division for the fourth year in a row. Um, you got Miami now with a lot of questions. Uh, the Pages won four games all year. Two of them are against 500 or better teams. The Dolphins are in the playoffs right now and only have one win versus such teams. Um, there, There's a lot of questions in Miami right now. Um, but... And some seasons were mercifully over. The Chargers season's mercifully over. The Patriots, the Cardinals, they're mercifully over. The Panthers are mercifully over. That's a horrible job right now. Tennessee's a horrible job right now. They fired Mike Vrabel for some unknown reason. Tennessee's a horrible job right now. You have no assets to trade, no money, and no draft picks. Like, that's an awful job right now. Uh, Carolina's an awful job. You have a lot of money, but where you, who are you going to spend it on? And then you don't own your own first-round draft pick. So your earliest pick is pick 33. Like, that's a bad job right now. Um, and so a lot of things going on. Uh, the running back class is going to be intriguing. Jacobs, Barkley, and Henry back on the market. Um, but we're going to talk about all that another time. Right now we're going to focus on the Super Wild Card Weekend. Uh, we're going to go game by game. We're going to pick them. We're going to discuss some of the huge. Uh, you know how we get down at JTS. Uh, but Saturday, it kicks off with Browns at Texans. And we're going to discuss the game in order of how they're played. So Browns at Texans. Browns are a two-and-a-half-point favorite on the road at Houston. That's an interesting line. Because you're telling me on a neutral site, Houston's five-and-a-half points worse than Cleveland? I don't get that one. Cleveland looked pretty rough in Week 18. Houston won a game to clutch their season. Now, they didn't look pretty while doing it, but they got it done. Um, and they are a they are a young team. And that's the thing that people should watch for in the offseason. Obviously, they still got football to be played, but that's the team people should be looking for in the offseason. Think about all their best players. Think about everybody think of on the Texans. Um, and I'm sure there's some guy the fans know I don't, but there's think about all these people, important people on the Texans. C.J. Stroud, rookie. Will Anderson, rookie. Tank Dell, rookie. 
So your quarterback, top receiver, and edge rusher are rookies. Derek Stingley is on his rookie contract. Uh, Dalton Kincaid, not yeah, I think it's Dalton. Dalton Schultz, not a very manageable contract as a tight end. They're gonna have a lot of money in cap. That is going to be a very dangerous team. Your T. Higgins of the world, Nico Collins isn't bad, but your T. Higgins of the world, your Derrick Henrys of the world, your Saquon Barkleys of the world. If I'm one of those guys, I'm calling Houston. I'm all my agent and kinds of Houston because they're going to be able to spend money for the next two to three years and still control their cap because all their best players are so young. Now, in three years, St. Louis have gotten paid Tank, Anderson, Stroud, the whole nine yards. All bets are off. But for the next three years, they have an opportunity to take advantage of a lot of their great players being on rookie deals. But anyway, you're trying to tell me that the Texans are five and a half points worse than the Browns. No. Plain and simple. The only way I see the Browns even being one-point favorites in this game is the fact that Houston's so young. But it ain't like Cleveland got a whole lot of playoff experience themselves. Um, what's Miles Garrett's playoff experience? Amari Cooper? I mean, Kareem Hunt's been in the playoffs, but that was a Patrick Mahomes. Uh, Joe Flacco probably hadn't seen the playoffs up on TV in the past five years. Um, Kevin Stefanski, he's, he's got a great playoff record? I didn't think so. Like, so, yes, D'Amico Ryan is a first-year head coach. He has C.J. Stroud as a rookie. But up until C.J. Stroud got a concussion, he was very seriously in MVP discussions. I mean, incredibly seriously. Now, Joe Flacco did win Player of the Month in December. Um, very earned. You know, 1,300 yards, 13 touchdowns, I think one pick. Maybe two picks, incredibly earned. But we're not going to act like Cleveland's this whaled oil machine who caught a bad break from a division opponent and now they have to go on the road to in the playoffs. Like, no, they, you know, Deshaun Watson was poor and he was injured and uh, Nick Chubb blew his knee apart. Like, they had their issues. They're a legitimate to me, five seed. And I think Houston actually wins this game outright. Not just the point spread, but wins the game outright. The better quarterbacks in Houston. Split when it comes to coaching. Receiver advantage right now, Cleveland. Edge rusher, Cleveland. Miles Gary is one of the best edge rushers in football. I just think Houston wins the game. I think uh, if we go position by position, Cleveland may have the edge on paper. But I think Houston wins the game. It's in Houston. A lot of energy fired up. A lot of, lot of noise. Swirling around Houston, they're going to be fired up. He thought it was loud for Michigan Washington. That first playoff game is going to roar in Houston. And I think that they may end up, actually, I think they may end up, they score that, if they score down the field and score on that first drive, they might run away and hide with it because of that energy of that crowd, the energy and momentum of that team, they may run away and hide um, away from Cleveland if they score early and fast. Um, so that is something to watch for, but I have Houston winning that game outright. And in the Saturday night game, the nightcap, uh, Dolphins at Chiefs in the frozen arrowhead. Uh, projected game dot time temperatures between zero and two degrees. Um, and so, yeah, Miami is going to go play a football game in between zero and two degrees. Z- yeah, yeah, yeah. Zero. And two. The Miami Dolphins. Speed and, you know, Miami are going to go play a football game on the road 
in zero or two degrees. Uh, it is one of the coldest games in league history. The winds are also supposed to be blowing between 10 and 20 mile an hour. It's a Chiefs paradise in terms of they're used to it. They're, I mean, they, the, I mean, the photo of people I shared is my homes running around in the snow. Like it's, it's, it's what the Chiefs are used to. It's in Kansas City. Um, and I was watching Uncle Ocho, and Chad Johnson was like, you don't get that cold in Kansas City. And Shannon Sharp was like, dude, have you ever played in Kansas City? Like, it was going to be between zero and two degrees. Uh, 10 and 20 mile an hour wins all game. Spelling disaster, in my opinion, for the Dolphins. Um, that down the field passing game, you're going to have to throw it through howling winds. And Tua doesn't already have the world's strongest arm. It's not like Tyree Hill used to play in this weather. I agree, but he's been a Miami boy for most of, not all, for, you know, for the past couple of years. Like, he's been a Miami guy. Um, two is from an island. Like, those guys have been playing in Miami all year. Like, cold to them around Miami was like six or something. And now they got to go play in zero degrees versus a Chiefs team that stole a bye. Um, and, and then you get um, the Miami team coming off an emotional letdown. Just a just a letdown. Like they went from potential two seed playing the Bills again in the playoffs to they're the sixth seed and having to go on the road to Kansas City again. Who stole the vibe? Travis Kelsey didn't play Week 18. Patrick Mahomes, Pacheco, like a lot of the stars. Chris Jones did to get his incentive, but a lot of the stars on that team did not play. So they stole an effective bye week. And they get a team that's emotionally dejected. They went from staring at posting a playoff game to going on the road in a frozen arrowhead. Uh, so the points we're at now is Dolphins plus four. I've got the Chiefs um, winning that game outright. Uh, I don't think the Dolphins will be able to move legitimately. Like I just, I just don't see the environment being conducive to their success. And so I've got the Chiefs here. Uh, kind of ugly though, twenty-four to fourteen. Um, that secondary is going to be allowed because of how cold it's going to be. They're going to be able to keep up with those Chiefs, those Dolphins receivers. I don't know if the zone run is going to be effective, having to cut back in a lot of the misdirection like McDaniel like to run. It's going to be a lot of cutting back on the frozen field. But we will definitely keep our eye on it, of course. But I've got the Chiefs winning the game and covering the four points. Moving into Sunday, uh, probably the game I'll talk about the fastest, Steelers at Bills. Um, this is this is an overmatch. I mean, this was. I mean, this is this is plain and simple. It's an overmatch. The Steelers already have a bad offense. Now they're going to go in without T.J. Watt, so they're not even truly scaring Josh Allen on the other side. This is going to be an absolute blowout. The point spread is ten. It, I think it should be twelve and a half, thirteen. Like this is going to be an absolute. Destruction by the Bills. Um, Bills are going high with this one. 34-10, 34-13. Um, I don't see any way the uh, the Steelers even keep it close. This I'm glad it's the noon game because by 2 o'clock it'll be over. Um, I just don't see this as a uh, – it's not a playoff game. So it's like it's like the, like the um, Consolidate playoff next year. The FCS school or the group of five school plays the five seed and it's like – Yep, this is an overmatch. Like that's how it feels with the Steelers and the Bills. Like not healthy. TJ, no TJ Watt. There's nothing that scared Josh Allen. This is an overmatch. Uh, kind of feel about the Dolphins too. They have no edge rushers. They're signing edge rushers off the street, trying to just get edge rushers on the team to even go play against Chiefs. Like 
It's just stuff working against people. Um, so I've got the Bills obviously winning and obviously covering the 10 points. Um, and it's also reunion weekend. Uh, I forgot to touch on that. It's also kind of reunion weekend. Um, for instance, um, Miami Tyreek Hill goes into Arrowhead. Um, I can't think of a reunion in Steelers and Bills, but Mike McCarthy faces the Packers in the playoffs. So the Packers play the Cowboys in the playoffs. Cowboys are minus seven and a half. So seven and a half playing favorites. I forgot the Packers actually covering the spread. I think the Cowboys win the game. I think the Packers keep it close. And the reason why is they can run the ball. And the Cowboys honestly can't. Um, Jair Alexander is going to be going to have to put his, his money away. out there some guard CeeDee Lamb. But the Packers can run the ball. Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon can run the ball. Um, and they can make this game shorter. Jordan Love has the second most passes in the league, only behind Dak Prescott. Um, and Dak has struggled against higher-level secondaries. Jair Alexander makes the Packers a higher-level secondary because he is able to guard a CeeDee Lamb. He is able to lock up one side of the field. That makes the Packers a high-level secondary. So I've got the Packers actually keeping this game closer than the 7.5. I've got it being 28-24 Dallas. Um, Dallas wins the game, but it may, they make the Packers. The Packers make them sweat it out um, all the way through. In our next reunion, in our last reunion, to me our biggest reunion Matthew Stafford and the Los Angeles Rams at the Detroit Lions. Uh, Lions minus three. I've got the Rams winning outright. Um, and how fitting would that be, right? The first, how fitting is it already? The first playoff game Detroit has hosted ever in Ford Field, as far as I can, as far as I know. Their first NFC North Division title ever. So it's definitely their first first round game hosted ever. Because in order to get a first-round game, you have to win your division. So, they were wild cards whenever they did make the playoffs. I know they always lost to Matt Stafford. They were like 0-3 or 0-4 with Matt Stafford. Before him, it was dark. Like, this could be their first home playoff game in Ford Field ever. Um, now, I count that history in the 80s and 90s. I'm saying this. Like, when they moved to the Ford Field, this is their first home playoff game ever. At one point, they had Matt Stafford and Calvin Johnson. They made the playoffs. They just never won the division. So they never had a home game. And how fitting is it that when they finally get it with Dan Campbell, Jared Goff, Jameer Gibbs, uh, Amon Ross, St. Brown, Aiden Hutchinson, and the rest of that Detroit Lions crew, uh, including both of their coordinators, been requested for interviews, how fitting is it that Matthew Stafford arrives, right? And it's like that trade that happened with them in, in, in full force, in, in staring at each other. Where Matthew Stafford and Jared Goff basically problem for problem. Uh, Stafford had kind of worn out his welcome in Detroit and was looking to move on. Jared Goff was needed a fresh start. Um, and so the two the two quarterbacks got swapped for each other. And Stafford won a Super Bowl ring with the Rams. And Goff has now brought Detroit to their first home playoff game in four field history. Um, and how fitting is it that Stafford could be the one to beat Detroit in their first home playoff game? Well, I think he does. I think he gets it done. I think it's a shootout. Um, Aaron Donald makes a play. Aiden Hutchinson does it. Uh, 34-31 Rams. And Stafford jogs off a forward field with a playoff victory for the first time in his career. And then the nightcap, or the Monday night game, 
I believe it's the last Monday night game of the year. Uh, Eagles at Bucks. Bucks plus three. Take the Eagles uh, to cover and to win. All right. Look, I get it. I get it. The Eagles have played horrible. They are the second team in NFL history to start 10 and 1 and better and never make it to 12 wins. Um, in context, that is 1 and 5 to close the season. Um, because, again, it's, it's normally 1 and 4. Um, because, you know, but it's 1 and 5 now to close the season. They started off 10 and 1. And they never made it to 12 wins. Um, they Again, they went 1 and 5 the rest of the year. Ultimately, go from a inside track, a big inside track on the one seed to not even winning your own division. Um, it was rough. And then in week 18, Jalen Hurts' finger pop out of place. A.J. Brown has a situation. Devonta Smith gets a situation. You know, and now you're just adding all these situations in and these different struggles. And the team is just lost. Like, they just look, I don't want to say in shock, but in shock. Like, you have Jalen Hurts coming to the microphone talking about some learning opportunity. That's not going over well with social media or the regular media. Um, and it's just been a rough situation in Philly. Now people are having question Nick Sirianni. Um, and, you know, he and we spoke about it before. Like, Philly being as good as they were was a credit to Sirianni because they had to replace both coordinators. Not one. Both of them took head coach jobs in the same offseason. One to Philly and one to uh, Houston. Not Houston. One to Philly and one to... Oh, man, not Philly. One to Indianapolis and one to Arizona. And so they both took head coaching jobs in the same cycle. So not only is he trying to figure out what to do with his offense, he's got to figure out what to do with his defense, including making new hires, how to get the system in place, and everything. And so it was a miracle that Philly was even doing what they were able to do. And then go to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers side, Baker Mayfield is going on a mini-career resurgence. Uh, he's playing a little reckless, but I think it's working for him. It's allowing him to play a little bit more free. Uh, he's hitting Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, which are always good plans. And he doesn't even have his fully loaded defense because the organization and Devin White have gotten to disagreements. And so he is uh, battling not even having his fully loaded defense ready to go. But they won the division. Now, it was the worst division in football, but they did win it. Um and we're going to speak about the other half of the NFC South. But they won an ugly game over Carolina, 9-0. But it got them in the playoffs, hosting a home playoff game versus the Philadelphia Eagles team. It feels a lot like when Brady, um, that year after the Super Bowl, where they hosted against the Rams, where the Rams were the better team, but the Bucs got to host it. The Eagles are a better team. Bucs get to host it. Um, they better score more than nine points this time. I don't care what their defense does. Uh, Philly wins the game and covers the three points of 20 Two, ten. Now up next, we're gonna jump into Jack's hot take, which is gonna be Shannon Sharp versus Jameis Winston. Welcome back into the show, and now we're going to jump into Jack's hot take, which is going to be a discussion 
or my commentary rather on Jameis Winston versus Shannon Sharp. So as you guys may know or don't know, or if you don't know, I'm going to fill you in. Um, the New Orleans Saints played the Atlanta Falcons. I'll give you the backstory of the controversy. So the New Orleans Saints played the Atlanta Falcons, uh, one of the most heated robberies in the NFL. It is not as nationally prominent as Steelers-Ravens, um, but it's up there, right, in terms of the vitriol and the dislike. And there's, you know, there's problems between the Atlanta Falcons and the New Orleans Saints. And there's iconic moments of one knocking the other out of the playoff race, of taunting, of celebrations, of, I mean, there's just vitriol. Like I say, it doesn't have the level of um, struggle and national attention Steelers, Ravens gets, and that because of the level of Hall of Famers that played in that game. Um, Steelers, Ravens, at one point, it was Troy Palomalu, James Harrison, um, Jerome Bennett, Ben Roethlisberger on one side, and then Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, Shannon Sharp, on, like, you know, on the other. Uh, there's been legends in Steelers, Ravens throughout the past well, the Ravens 20-something years old, past 30 years in that matchup. Falcons and Saints have had awards and a lot of vitriol in that series as well. Okay. So, it's 41-17, about a minute left. Ritter, I think it's Ritter, throws a pick to Ty Matthew. Ty Matthew reads it beautifully. Pick, a oh, minute, 20-something seconds left. Ty Matthew reads it beautifully. Pick. Takes off down the field. Now, Tyron is jogging. And I think he's mentally fighting. Wait, it's a long run. He caught it like on the 30, 35-yard line. So it's a long run against the end zone. But I think mentally, he's wondering in his head if he should slide. Because at this point, the Saints know they're out. Because the the Atlanta, Tampa, Carolina game went final before their game did. So they know they're out. The only way they could have got in feasibly was the Buccaneers to lose. Because then they would have needed uh, the Bears to beat the Packers and um, Arizona to beat Washington, Arizona to beat Seattle. Um, neither one of those things happened. Seattle won and the Packers won. Um, so in order for the Saints to get in. So they pretty much at that point know they're out. So Tyron's jogging down the field, but he makes it a pretty far away. I mean, once he gets out to 30, I think he just figures, okay, I might as well try and get in. But now he's being chased down. He tries to avoid it. Gets tackled at the one. Of course, the DB, of course, defense hands on their head. And they're like, oh, I can't believe he got caught. And it's a big thing, right? They're at the one. Again, this is one of the more hated rivalries in the NFL. This is a rivalry that's like Broncos Chiefs in the 90s that Shannon Sharp participated in. Ravens Steelers 2000s. Like, it is legitimate beef. It's all day, every day. Like, you get heckled in the other city stores for wearing the team merch. So, like, if you're in Atlanta wearing Saints gear, they heckle you. If you're in New Orleans wearing Falcons gear, you get heckled. Like, that, that's, a, that's an issue. It's a problem. Like, that's not something you can just do. Right? And I did just from New Orleans. I live in Baton Rouge. Wear Falcons gear out here. Dude, you get heckled. Like, it's not something you could just regularly do. You, that's not a normal thing. It's not... Oh, it's Packers, Packers, Bears. You know, but that's been so one-sided. That's not really that fun either. But, like, you know, it's not like the Giants were playing the Dolphins that have no real connection. Like, and they, you know, it's Falcons and Saints. 
So it's on the one yard line, minute, 20 some odd seconds left. Dennis Allen, by self-admission of Dennis Allen and Jameis Winston, said, let's take a knee. Jameis, with the support of his team, says, hey, Jamal hasn't scored all year. Now, when Jamal Williams came to the Saints last season, he hit the Kansas all season. He had come off a season where he scored 17 touchdowns and led the league in touchdowns. He was a fantasy darling. Um, and he came to New Orleans on a three-year, $12 million deal after nobody, nobody paid any of the running backs. He got three years, $12 million deal from the Saints. He joins the Saints, right? He had injuries. He's been battling, just trying to even stay healthy. Scoring wasn't in priority. He was trying to stay healthy and play games. Of course, he's behind Alvin Kamara, and the running back they got in place of Williams was playing pretty well, so snaps were limited. Whatever. So the whole team goes, hey, Jamal can't go from leading the league in rushing touchdowns to not scoring at all. We're on the one. Let's just give it to Jamal and let Jamal get in. All right? He had the support of James Winston, who had the support of the team, including the starting center. The starting center said, I couldn't have gone to sleep that night if Jamal didn't score. Right? So the whole team's in agreement. DA, Dennis Allen, goes to know we're going to kneel it. Well, that same team who supported Jameis Winston in the center to get Jamal Williams touchdown says, okay, we're going to line up in the knee and we're going to dive left. We're going to hand the ball to Jamal. We're going to get Jamal in the end zone. Again, the score is 41-17. The game is over. If you take knees, the game is over. If you score, the game is over. It's 41-17. It's Atlanta's last game of the year. It's effectively the AFC Championship game. Atlanta's only way in was that, was to beat the Saints and then the Bucks to lose. Bucks game went final. The Falcons were over. Like, and they go and they score. After the game, Arthur Smith is ballistic. They now fired Arthur Smith. Arthur Smith is ballistic. He's cursing out Dennis Allen, going, what the F was that? That's some F- effing BS. Um, you don't do BS like that. Uh, what the F is wrong with you, etc." Dennis Allen looks very apologetic. He has his hands out. He's obviously not in a confrontational state. He's not defending his actions. He's not even being smug about it. He's clearly like, no, you can see in the video, like, no, like, I get it. He's trying to talk to him. It ain't working. Smith curses him out and walks off. After the game, Dennis Allen gets asked what happened. He does the unthinkable. He throws Jameis Winston under the bus. He said, it wasn't me. I called a kneel. The team decided, I think you might have said Jameis decided, to run the dive to try and get Jamal a touchdown because he hadn't scored all year. They asked me about it. I told them no. They did it anyway. Um, you whatever. Then Jameis Winston in the locker room. Of course, not everybody in the whole. Now everybody heard Dennis Allen. They're all running with Jameis Winston in the locker room. Jameis in the locker room doubles down. He said, yeah, it was a team decision to get Jamal a touchdown. He hadn't had one all year. We were on the one-yard line. We had a team decision to get Jamal a touchdown. Okay. I'm going to put my stamp on this before I go into how I feel about Shannon Sharp's stamp. My personal stamp on this is my only problem is victory formation. Right? And I think they did victory formation to stop Dennis Allen from calling a timeout. Because also the team was upset they threw Jameis in. Jameis hadn't been in the game yet. 
throw Jameis in on the one yard line and take knees. Like at that point, like Derek Carr finished it. But whatever. So my only issue with it is victory formation. Because in the NFL, most sports, when the other team is taking a knee, even at the high school level, if they come out in victory formation, they're taking knees. The ref goes to both sides, like, hey, don't fire off the ball. You're just snapping the ball, taking a knee, and we're going to let the clock run. Game's over, right? That's usually, I mean, like the refs say that, like, don't fire off the ball. Both sides kind of mutually kind of nod, like, especially the 41 17. Both sides kind of mutually nod, like, okay, cool. Let's just go home. Especially both of our teams are over anyway. Let's just go home, right? That's my issue. Now, the Saints didn't blow the Falcons out the ball. They didn't destroy them. They pushed just enough to let Jamal kind of squeak his head in there and get a touchdown. Because, again, the Falcons were probably told, don't fire, like, don't fire off the ball. They're going to take a knee. Okay. Because in that moment, sorry, my nose is messing with me. In that moment, the QB becomes protected pretty much the whole play. Anyway, that's my only issue, is that it was victory formation. Because the Falcons had no way to defend it. If Jameis switches it to traditional I-form and runs the dive, no harm, no foul, I got nothing. But because they didn't victory formation, the other team was off guard. That's my issue. Anyway. So that night... Shannon Sharp, of course, does Unk and Ocho with Chad Johnson, Chad Ojocinco. And then they talk about a couple other games, and he gets to that game. Shannon Sharp eviscerates Jameis Winston. He called it loser mentality. He said that's the reason why he didn't win in Tampa. He said that's the mentality of why Tom Brady came with basically the same team and won a Super Bowl, why Baker Mayfield, basically the same team, made the playoffs. He said that's a loser mentality, that if he was on the team, he would have jumped off sides on purpose to back him up and they couldn't do it. He said there is, you know, he went through all this stuff that, you know, Brian Billick and Baltimore didn't have rules and he cursed guys out and made sure they got on the team bus when their parents wanted to pick him up from the Super Bowl practice and take him wherever. He spoke about leadership. He spoke about, you know, he would cut Jameis Winston today and no teams, basically no teams should pick him up and he wouldn't be on his team and he didn't want him on his team. So on and so forth. Right? And Chad Ochocinco was like, man, Unc, you're going a little strong. Like, you know, maybe that wasn't a situation. That's when Shannon Sharp said, well, what if one of your kids did something you told them to what I do? Chad said, you better have a, a basically a damn good reason why you did it. And then Shannon Sharp kept going. It's like 10 minutes. He's just going off on Jameis Winston. Then he comes on first take the next morning, and he doubles down. Now, of course, he cleans it up a little bit because now he's on ESPN, Disney Airwaves, and not on YouTube, his own podcast, and on platform. He cleans it up a little bit, but he doubles down. I would cut Jameis Winston. He wouldn't be on my team. It's a loser mentality and all this stuff, right? And then, of course, people are going at him on Twitter. Saints fans a lot are going at him on Twitter. Hey, uh, you know, that's not right. What you did, woo do woo do You know. But one of Shannon Sharp's responses, two things I want to highlight about the Twitter interactions. One, every single player response was positive for Jameis Winston. Either he's a great teammate, that's something that's really dope, they're glad he did it, positive support. Uh, I'm a commander, that's my naysayer. Like, you know, positive support, emphatic, no one had a negative word from Jimmy Graham to Alva Kamara to Michael Thomas to... Jamal Williams after the game to 
anybody that made a comment. Ben Watson, I think, was another one. No player that commented, especially from the Saints, had a negative word to say. Okay? Let's start off with that. But then, one other interaction on X, I keep calling it Twitter, X, Shannon Sharp had was he said, imagine if it happened on Belichick, Parcells, he named a couple of other legendary coaches in his response. And my point is, exactly. Exactly. This was not a player issue. Because you want to know how deep-rooted, and some of the fans said it, like, man, they don't respect Dan's Allen, get D.A. up out of there, that's why that went down and was allowed to go down. Nobody respects Dan's Allen. Imagine that happened on a Bill Parcells team. Bill Parcells is cursing you out from the time you score through the rest of the game into the locker room, cursing you out, opening the door to the press conference, curse you out probably at the press conference, and go back to doing it. But they would have never been in that spot on a, on a Bill Parcells team. They just wouldn't. They wouldn't have been in that spot on the Bill Belichick team. They wouldn't have been in that spot on the Andy Reid team. They wouldn't have been in that spot on a Sean Payton team. You're not in that position. And you damn sure don't apologize to the enemy. I'm sorry to the Atlanta Falcons as the Saints head coach? Are you serious? I'm not a Saints fan. I'm a Patriots fan, but I understand. Like, the amount, what, what little respect Dennis Allen had in that locker room and in that fan base died when he apologized to the Falcons. That's the one thing you don't do. You can apologize to almost anybody else. Like in human history, you can't apologize to the Falcons. Like, like I said, whatever cachet, respect, whatever he had in that locker room died. It died in um, the time that he apologized to the Falcons. You can't do that. And my response to Shannon Sharp is simply this. Why are you holding Jameis Winston being a leader of his team to a higher standard than the coach? Because clearly there's a culture problem. There's a discipline problem. There's a respect problem in that locker room if the team, as Jameis has repeatedly said, every player in the locker room backed up, the team decided to do something the coach explicitly said not to do. Why are you focusing on calling Jameis Winston a loser with loser mentality, even though he won at Florida State? Loser with loser mentality, as opposed to focusing on Dennis Allen and what Dennis Allen did or did not do with his locker room. Mind you, your facts are wrong. Because that was not, yes, it was a similar team that Brady had than Jameis with two major differences. One, COVID. Tom Brady was illegally practicing on video during the COVID time. Nobody else in the league was moving. He was inviting people to a local high school in Florida illegally practicing. That was commended. That was showing he did anything to win. As a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, you got on Tom Brady on TV for doing that. Saying he wasn't following the rules. Right? It's also the COVID year. So a lot of the teams started off really, really slow. If that was going to be a time for you as a quarterback to introduce to a new team and to win, it was that year. Why? Because no one had a training camp. No one had an offseason. Not really. So now everybody's trying to install. Everybody's working with first time in months. 
everybody is doing all this stuff. Everybody's on the same playing field. That's why bad teams started off that year hot. Because everybody was on the same playing field. And then by week four, week five, you, the gap shows back up. But at that point, Brady and them had figured it out. They had already done illegal practice, etc., to get their chemistry together. And now they figured it out. Also, mind you, that team was floundering and Brady was pissed. What happened, Mr. Shannon Sharp? Oh, that's when they had the come to Jesus meeting, him and Bruce Arians, about what they're going to do with the offense. Arians relented. We're going to do it your way, Brady. And then Brady rips off the run and they're going to win the Super Bowl. It's not the fact that it's basically the same team. It's the fact that they switched their entire offensive scheme to play Tom Brady's way. Okay? That's, that's your first fallacy. Your second fallacy, Mr. Sharp, is that Baker's doing with the same team. I'm sorry. I don't see Devin White. I don't see Shaq Barrett. Two defensive changes. You're thinking, that helps my case. It doesn't. Because that entire offensive staff that had no risk it, no biscuit, that that Javis had 5,000 yards, something like that, 30 touchdowns, 30 picks, along with Brady that got pissed. He was throwing picks left and right. He was pissed at the offense. That staff is gone. That's not Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich anymore. That's whoever the hell the OC is for Tampa. But it ain't them. So, yeah, it may be a similar roster, but it's a different offensive scheme. It's one that protects the quarterback a lot better. It's a lot more West Coast, a lot more play action. A lot more shorter throws instead of no risky, no biscuit from Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich. So, another one of your fallacies. So, you're slandering a guy and using information that's wrong. You obviously say, well, why, why didn't Jamal Williams go weeks 1 through 17? Because he was injured. Which, again, had you done an ounce of research, you would have known. So, you're going through and slandering Jameis Winston on fallacies and false information and misinformation, fooling the average fan who's just going to back you up. And everybody in your comment section, you were responding left and right. Why? Because you were wrong. And at one point, you said to Uncle Ocho, I stand on this hill by myself. You are. Because even, Sh- even uh, Stephen A. Smith, my apology, Stephen A. Smith was like, he was kind of trying to back you off his stance a little bit because what you said was strong it was aggressive it actually was just as disrespectful as what you claim Skip Bayless was to you while you left undisputed if you want to be perfectly frank because Skip used to throw little digs at your career when he in reference to Tom Brady you threw a shovel of dirt on Jameis' career and then you referenced your own it's the exact same thing. In the words of you, in the words of your grandfather, your grandmother, one of those two great people who had influence on your life, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. If you don't be careful, you'll find yourself on a you find yourself on the road you took to avoid something. You did the same thing to Jameis. You claim Skip Bayless did to you. You did the same exact thing. Also, Skip was mostly right with his. You were dead wrong on pretty much the entire situation. And the fact you tried to point out your leadership moments throughout your career, and then you said that you would have jumped off sides. So you would have went against your entire team. The other 45 active players didn't matter. You was going to jump off sides because the coach no one respects was going to, was going to be his rule was going to stand. That's leadership? That's leadership. I didn't know. So, Mr. Sharp, I know you're trying to capitalize on your Cat Williams fame, and you can say you're not. Because you're already telling me the haters are getting to you. You already told us that it's bothering you a little bit. You told us, hey, you didn't expect this and you're overwhelmed. Which, hey, 35 million in, what, five days is insane? But, you know, maybe you're trying to hot take that one. Maybe you felt really strongly about it. I'm not sure. 
But that was wrong on a lot of levels. You were wrong on your facts, you were wrong on your feelings, you were wrong on your stance. It's okay, it happens. Right? It happens. But next time, before you eviscerate someone the way you came in Jameis Winston, because he's been very respectful about this process. Jameis actually had a great back and forth with the reporter, and they were um, doing the Lakeith uh, Stanfield in the movie. I hope you have a great day. I hope you have an amazing week. I hope your month is spectacular, brother. Like, they were doing the respect thing, but you can clearly tell there was an underlying current there. But the uh, the overlay thing was respect. You came at Jameis Winston mentality. You came at his play. You said, why Baker did this and Brady did that and how come Jamal Williams do this? You did everything at Jameis Winston when you ignored the culture problem in New Orleans under the stewardship of Dennis Allen. You just let him through. You even referenced coaches on X that that would have never happened to. And you still not once mentioned Dennis Allen. You know, Cat Williams said something on your show. He said, in your Friendship potential, whatever, with phase on love. You have an, unnat- an unnatural allegiance to losers, and that's unlike you. Cat Williams didn't lie in that special. But maybe he did about that. Maybe that is like you. Because you definitely chose Dennis Allen's lack of organizational control and regime over Jameis Winston. Interesting. Not something I would have done, especially without facts. About the rivalry, about Jamal Williams, about Jameis Winston, about what happened in Brady's Super Bowl season, about what happened with Baker Mayfield this season, how, yes, the teams are similar, but the staff is not. Interesting, Mr. Sharp. Very interesting decisions. But that is all I have for today. Uh, thank you guys for listening in to the Justin Time Sports Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, make sure you download us, hit that subscribe button. I love your ratings. I love seeing your comments. Also, don't forget to um, follow and turn on the post notifications for the Justin Time Sports podcast and the social media on uh, on all your favorite social medias: X, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, sorry, I said Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Threads. But that is all I have for today. This is your host, Justin Jackson.